This is an ABC podcast. G'day, gladys and potties. Welcome to another LNL, or in this case, LIB, because tonight we're going to be giving some good advice to the Libs. And then later, we're off to Cambodia to look at the lake that was vital to the rise and fall of the Angkor Empire. And you will not be surprised to hear it's in deep trouble again. But first, Sammy J wants to have a word with you. I believe that the climate is changing I've said that for nearly ten years I support same-sex marriage The plebiscite It was one of my brilliant ideas And you'll find no greater supporter of women Except the ones wearing teal So why did you end it so suddenly? I thought that we had a deal at me I've been a reasonable voice I'm a liberal progressive who spent his career voting with Barnaby Joyce but I felt bad when I did it yeah a bit of me died every time now I'm out of a job just for towing my own party line The Libs, the Libs, the Libs, not only lost the election, but uh, many of the uh, heartland seats to the so-called Teal Independence. And in the last few weeks, the media has been awash with op-eds trying to get to the bottom of where it all went wrong and whether the party should respond by swinging to the right, further to the right or to the left. My old friend, comrade Barry Jones, suggested someone should go all the way back to... 1944 and asked what happened to the party of Sir Robert Menzies and that's what we're going to do. Joining me on the journey are three guests who have spent oodles of time with Bob's ghost. Sitting with me in the studio, Troy Bramston, senior writer and columnist at The Oz and author of the biography called Robert Menzies, the Art of Politics. We welcome back Judith Brett, Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe and the author of Robert Menzies' Forgotten People and Australian Liberals and the Moral Middle Class. And last and certainly not least, Fred Cheney, who was uh, formerly the Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party and served as a minister in the Fraser government. And for many years, Fred was my favourite Liberal and I often described him as the best Liberal Prime Minister we never had. Incidentally, his niece, Kate, is the new member-elect for the WA seat of Curtin and was, of course, one of the aforementioned Teals. I welcome you all. Judith, you're up front. Take us back to okay. 1944, please, and give us a, a brief Reader's Digest condensation of how the Libs, the Liberal Party, originally came about. Well, um, there was an election in 1943, which John Curtin and Labor won decisively, and the various non-Labor forces fragmented. The United Australia Party, which was the sort of major bearer of the Liberal, of the non-Labor flame, if you like, got like 13 seats, and there were so that it splintered all over the place. There was different non-Labor parties in the different states. Uh, there were leagues. It was a mess, and so. Menzies and and others decided that they needed to form a united modern non major non labor party really modeled on the way they, the sort of party labor had which had a national organization which had a strong branch structure which had a coherent um, philosophy. And so he called representatives of these various fragmented non-Labor organisations together uh, in a couple of conferences and they formed the Liberal Party of Australia. Troy, he chose the word liberal quite carefully, didn't he, rather than conservative? 
That's right. In fact, he had never used the word conservative to describe the party uh, when he led it. And of course, he is the Liberal Party's longest serving leader, its principal founder and its longest serving prime minister. He actually said that he wanted to create a liberal and a progressive party that was not reactive or negative. Um, he actually said he, he didn't want a party to be resistant to political and economic progress. He was very aware that he didn't want the party to be called reactionary. He actually said there's no place for a party of negation, a party of the no uh, in Australian politics. And so he did talk about a party that was forward-looking, uh, believing in the individual, a private enterprise, rejecting socialism, um, but a party that was progressive and liberal, not, not conservative. <laughs> Almost exactly 80 years ago, before the 2022 election, which is in May 42, he delivered his radio addresses to the forgotten people, that broad middle class. Yeah, that's right. And it became, I think, a lodestar for what would become the Liberal Party and appeal to the professional, uh, moral, middle class people who were, in a sense, politically homeless. Uh, they weren't going to support uh, a Labor Party, uh, which had a strong trade union link, uh, but they were people people looking for a party that they could support, a party that supported the individual, supported private enterprise, but was very much a professional class. And I think when you look at the teal independents, as they're called, many of them uh, would be traditional Liberal voters. He wasn't progressive, quote unquote, in the way we would define it today. For example, he, uh, he did support white Australia. He did. His views on Aboriginal Australians, on uh, immigration uh, are out of place. Um, he was personally a conservative person. He, 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 I think, advocated liberalism within a very conservative economic, uh, social and political framework. But by, by progressive, he meant sort of forward looking, uh, open to new ideas. He talked about willing to make experiments, uh, being a party of the future, not the past uh, and not reactionary, especially. Fred, I didn't realise that your father and namesake was one of uh, Menzies' ministers and that you helped your father campaign when you were 14. The Liberal Party that Troy has just described is really the Liberal Party I grew up in. Uh, it was uh, very, um, I think, moderate, uh, conservative in a sense, uh, conservative certainly about money, um, but uh, very much open to new ideas and a very friendly place I found to be uh, politically active. We can draw out quite a few differences between Menzies and his modern-day contemporaries. For example, Judith, Menzies was a big supporter of institutions like the universities of which he was very proud. Yes, I think, and I think it's important to put some content into what he meant by being progressive and forward-looking. Like at the point, what he was wanting to do for the Liberal Party was to embrace Keynesianism, which was, if you like, the new way of understanding the government's relationship to the economy, and also to embrace the expanded welfare state that Labor had brought in during the war. So when he was saying we can't just be a party of no, it was we can't be a party of no to some of the things that Labor was doing and which represented, if you like, the way to build a modern Australia. Yes, to put the individual at it, but he was accepting some other things. And you're quite right, he saw that um, in a new, expanding, more knowledge-based economy that was developing after the war, and particularly into the 50s, Australia needed a modern and expanded university system. And this had a deep personal meaning for Menzies because, you know, he'd been, he was the son of a shopkeeper, uh, and education had been really important for him in bringing him to where he, he was as Prime Minister of Australia. And to his credit, in 1951, he introduced the Commonwealth Scholarships. Yes, that's right. Um, you know, and because he'd been a scholarship boy himself to private education, when Menzies was growing up, there was no free publicly available secondary education and that only developed after the First World War and he, he saw this as extremely important both for individuals but also to build a modern economy. Troy, I think it's important that people know that uh, Bob had a number of close friends across the aisle, didn't he? He did. Look, he forged uh, good friendships with John Curtin and Ben Chifley uh, and also... He cried uh, the night of, of Chifley's death, I recall. That's right. It was the night of the Grand Jubilee Ball Ben Shifley was the former Prime Minister but opposition leader and news came to the ball in Parliament House and Ben Shifley in, uh, and Robert Menzies interrupted the band and announced 
to the to the party goers that uh, a great Australian had died, uh, and that was Ben Chifley. He asked people to finish their partying and go home, um, and he cried. He cried in the King's Hall in Old Parliament House, and he didn't care who saw him. He had these real friendships across the divide. He had a friendship with Arthur Corwell as well. It, wa- it wasn't with every. He also every- later had one with Jim Cairns. Yeah, he did. Look, he was someone who was you know he was a political professional, um, but uh, and he and he was tribal, of course, um, but. He he wasn't nasty. He didn't see political opponents as enemies. He saw them as adversaries and he, he believed in the battle of ideas. A lovely distinction. Fred, you say the Liberal Party you joined was a community-based organisation. Tell me tell me more about that. Well, my in my young days in the party, you had meetings held in people's houses. Uh, they were sort of the sort of people who, I guess, joined Rotary, joined Apex, um, were JPs, were saw themselves as you know, as, as citizens, saw themselves as people with a duty to society, uh, interested in politics, certainly um, anti-labour, um, anti-socialism rather, um, and that was the sort of one of the defining elements of, of you know what identified us as a group is that we weren't socialists. <laughs> um, even though in today's terms what the Menzies government did would be seen as very much of the centre, if not um, of the left. I mean, um, extending state aid to Catholic schools, for example, was quite a step um, in my youth. Um, and so there was a, a totally different atmosphere about politics. It was There, was the, there were mass memberships in, in all of the parties and the memberships took their, took their role very seriously. When did that big divide between the wets and the dries happened, Fred? Well, that was sort of dramatic time during the the 70s and into the early 80s. And that reflected the fact that the the things that have been taken for granted, what what I think some people call the Federation Settlement, that we would have high tariffs and centralised wage fixing and a lot of government intervention, reliance on strong and powerful friends, all that came up for grabs. And there was a very deep debate, certainly within the Liberal Party and in, within the bureaucracy, within society, about whether we needed a more open economy. And that debate really, in a way, split the party between wets and dries. But by the time we lost government in uh, 1983, uh, I think the dries were in the ascendant. And, uh, and so so that was sort of, and that really was a prelude to the great Hawke reforms. So the discussion we're having has its precursor, doesn't it, in that era? I'm talking to Fred Choney, former deputy leader of the Liberal Party and uncle of independent member-elect for Curtin, Kate Choney, author and columnist at The Australian, Troy Bramston, and uh, our old friend Judith Brett. What happened to the Liberal Party of Menzies is our topic. Judith, by the time we get to John Winston Howard, we have a society that looks very different to Menzies' day. And one thing you've pointed out is how the relationship between education and politics has changed. Tell me more about that. It starts shifting, I guess, um, in the Howard period because what you get happening with, I think, with the Liberal Party during Howard that partly explains the sort of split between the wets and the dries that we were talking about is you get the Liberals embracing economic liberalism but also a sort of social conservatism, issues around sexuality and gender uh, now, you know, politically politically contested. Um, and also Australia is a much more ethnically, religiously and racially diverse society than it was when Menzies founded the Liberal Party. And these divides also take on a political shade. And Howard, uh, in a way politicises like the beginning of the culture wars and there's also that rather uh, nasty debate in the 1980s around Asian immigration, which Howard gets caught up in. He extricates himself um, before he wins the 1996 election and takes a, 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 a more acceptable policy, but there's a bit of dog whistling that goes on. So I think these issues, you know, we mentioned before the White Australia policy was accepted by everybody in the 1940s, so these these issues around race, ethnicity, religion, gender were just not relevant in Menzies' day. Troy? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, John Howard has described himself as the most conservative leader the Liberal Party has ever had, but he still nevertheless believes in a broad church party of liberals and conservatives or wets and dries as they used to be uh, called. But I do think the the party has become more conservative. Uh, it has moved to the right. Um, and I remember interviewing people like, uh, you know, Andrew Peacock, who was probably one of the last great sort of small L Liberal Party leaders. Um, and he was worried about the party becoming more conservative. Um, and a more recent, I guess, sort of small L liberal would be Peter Costello. Um, and he joked to me a few years ago that he doubt whether he would get pre-selection today for the Liberal Party. Judith, this, of course, is similar what, to what's happened in the US. Do you think that the Liberal Party has uh, looked to the Republican Party for inspiration of late? Well, yes, I think it started doing that in Howard's period um, and, and you start getting... Um, you know, issues, particularly on issues around gender and sexuality. But I don't think it's done the party much good, um, you know, because Australia is, is different from the United States. We've got compulsory voting for a start, but also relig we're not as religious a society. Religious do religion doesn't have the political salience. And I think you can see that in the, in the really strong support for the same-sex marriage bill. Um, when we finally got that strange survey slash plebiscite on it. Fred, you resigned from the Liberal Party in 1995 and I remember at the time you were concerned about Indigenous issues uh, and, the, and, and our treatment of uh, refugees after Tampa. But what was your principal reason? Well, the principal, the, the, the trigger at that point was the continuing messing about with selections, the... Uh, manipulation of selections, and I was affronted by the removal of the uh, endorsement of Alan Rocher, who had defeated me for the seat of Curtin and, um, in, in selection. So I thought he was very hard done by, and I uh, supported his candidacy, his successful candidacy, and therefore I was ineligible to be a continuing member of the party in 1995. But I think my discontent with the party really arose because of the attitude on certainly on Aboriginal matters, um, but on things like the children overboard affair, and the the preparedness to I think be cruel in policy, um, in a way which flew in the face of what I thought the Liberal Party was about, which was respect for individuals, and I've seen that as really manifestly lacking, and not less. You know, a very good example of that is the robo debt debacle, where uh, you know really defenceless citizens were put upon by the government and money demanded from them, the onus of proof reversed, and it was the might of the state against defenceless individuals, and I think that was totally offensive, and yet no one in the Liberal Party stood up and objected until it was found to be illegal. If the Republican Party has been an influence, Fred, I suppose that Margaret Thatcher was another. I think Thatcher was the beginning of the, the rot on the conservative side of politics, if you like, or the, the right of centre side of politics with her declaration there is no such thing as society. I think that uh, the politics uh, of my youth was, was one in which society was the most important thing. It was how governments served people, not the other way around, and how the people um, had the society that they wanted, a society of home ownership, etc., etc. So um, I think that put it out of kilter, and I think the impact has been right up to the present day and I think it's been very malign. Fred has raised the issue of morality, uh, Judith, so let's let's yes. look at that. You have said that at the, well, at the election, the Libs lost what you called its moral middle class. Yes, well, I, look, I think there's often... Um particularly in the media, the idea that everybody votes out of their hip pockets, you know, what's in it for me, cost of living pressures and that sort of thing. And obviously that's important for as, as part of what people are voting about. But if you look at the history of the Liberal Party, Liberal um, leaders argued that you voted on the basis of what you thought was best for the country. And that often did involve things like perceptions of the competence of the people who would be leading the country. Um, but And the capacity to to 
put to not just vote on behalf of, of sectional interests of your interests. And that was one of the powerful historic argument that was put against the Labor Party, that Labor would govern on behalf of the organised working class on the trade unions and the trade unions, but wouldn't have the capacity to think about the whole range of interests that made up the society and the economy. You've, you've raised the issue of competence or the perception of competence, mm. but you argue, I think, that this predates Morrison's term. Oh, yes. I mean, I th look, I think the Morrison government's the most incompetent government that I can experience in my lifetime. And, um, but it was when Labor first appears as a challenge to, as a challenge, as a real potential party of government in the early 20th century, one of the major arguments against it that the established parties could put is, look, you're going to have a bunch of uneducated men running the country. What you want is competent people with experience in business that understand how finance works, that understand foreign affairs, external affairs as they were in those days. Um, and that's always been an important part of, of the Liberal Party's claim to govern. And I think that what we saw in the last three years was a government which really couldn't claim that at all. Fred, do you agree that the perception of competence or of incompetence was a major factor? I think, to, to me, the strongest factor was the lack of accountability and there's, there's no sense of right and wrong within the government and no shame when they were caught out, as they so often were, as using taxpayers' funds for really partisan purposes. But I, I do reinforce Judith's point about the moral middle class. <clears throat> I described the people that I was in the Liberal Party with as people who saw themselves as uh, having a real interest in the well-being of the country and, and taking moral positions, not just self-interested positions. Uh, to be quite honest, I've described myself as a doctor's wife for years now because <laughs> that contemptuous expression, that it, it's an expression of contempt for people who actually care for something other than their immediate political advantage. And uh, it's very easy to throw that off. But uh, I'm, I'm also married to a doctor's wife too, so it's a very comfortable <laughs> arrangement. Agreed, Troy? Yeah, I think the uh, the old phrase about doctors' wives, well, the wives are now doctors and they're winning Liberal Party seats. Um, I do think that this election was largely about character and competence. I do think the Morrison government did become a government marked by uh, sleaze and scandal um, across its across its front bench. Um, and so you look back at someone like Robert Menzies, who was a safe, trusted, reassuring leader, a competent leader, um, who people may not have agreed with everything that he did, but they respected him. And and even though John Howard was sometimes ideological on some things, he was nevertheless respected, I think, as a leader, and he won four elections. And I think what's happened to the Liberal Party is it's lost that claim to competence uh, and good management and stable government. And so these things have had a, had a big impact on the election. And the other point to quickly make, Philip, is, is of course, that it was also an election about integrity and it was an election about women. And, of course, when the Liberal Party was formed, it was partly formed with the support of the Australian Women's National League. Women had equal roles with men um, within the party. Robert Menzies encouraged that, he supported it, um, and it was also a party that really believed in integrity. Uh, and there was never any hint of scandal about Robert Menzies, but all of these attributes, all these virtues that the Liberal Party had for three quarters of a century seem to have gone. There's a paradox here, Troy, in that uh, ScoMo kept protesting his religious convictions, and yet they didn't seem to manifest in the way he ran a government. No, I don't think anybody would begrudge the Prime Minister being a strongly religious person, um, but it probably did in it did uh, character his characterise his government uh, more than others. I do think the Liberal Party has moved further to the right. And there's been a bit of a straw man argument put, I think, by conservative commentators that, oh, well, the Liberal Party can't move to the left. Well, of course, it wouldn't, shouldn't move to the left, but it does need to move to the centre, to the centre ground of politics where elections are run and won. We're going to focus on that much more as the program progresses, but staying with you, Troy, we have to look at the role the National Party has played in this too, don't we, as Sammy Jay was reminding us. 
Yeah, I think Barnaby Joyce has been um, a disgraceful uh, deputy prime minister, a terrible leader of the National Party who who took the who held the Liberal Party to ransom on climate change policy, effectively dictating policy for you know a se- several weeks while the nation held its collective breath about which direction the government would go in. I think the National Party has fundamentally misunderstood the nature of the coalition relationship, and you know the great National Party or country party leaders like John McEwen or Doug Anthony or Tim Fisher understood that you've got to have a cooperative and collaborative relationship. You can't embarrass uh, the Liberal Prime Minister. You've got to respect that you're the junior party and you've got to work together. And in many ways, Barnaby Joyce just threw that rule book out the window. Fred, what about the role of media in this election? It was was very strange because the Labor Party faced a fairly solid wall of hostility and survived. Well, it does raise the question about how much notice people take of the media. I think that there's a whole element of this campaign that was a mystery to me, and that's the social media campaign, which clearly was quite an important part and which is um, not – I don't access it, so I don't know what's going on there. But it was interesting to see the steady campaigning in the Murdoch press in favour of the return of the government. Uh, It was really – so strong and so consistent. I've never seen anything like it, including in the cartoons in the Australian. And in that situation, it seems that it had no effect at all, um, that the disillusioned one-third who didn't vote for the major parties uh, took no notice of the mass media. I don't want to embarrass you, Troy, but uh, what's your line on this? Well, Philip, you and I both write for the Australian newspaper. Yes, we do. We take Rupert's penny. Um, look, I think political parties have... Uh, sorry, the, the media has often had uh, political views in elections. I mean, um, the so-called Murdoch media is a is a centre-right um, organisation, I guess, um, and that's always they've always played a role in election campaigns. I mean, do they change elections? I've always been sceptical of that argument, but nevertheless, there are also media and online media on on the left of politics who who advocate uh, for what they believe in too. Judith, have you kept an eye on the media, social and mainstream? <laughs> Well, I mean, one of the things I was struck by, there was a, um, I think the Herald Sun had a front page with a a photo of Josh Frydenberg and his wife and two children. It was like a political ad for Frydenberg. So, I mean, yes, they weren't successful in um, getting the government returned, but perhaps with with more balanced coverage, Labor may have got a bigger majority than it did. Fred, uh, let's go a step further and ask, is this an existential moment for both major parties and indeed the entire two-party system? Well, I think it could be if the Labor Party, if the new government doesn't show a capacity to really focus on government rather than politics. Um, That, to me, was what happened to the political system over recent years, that we had people who were... Uh, governing for politics, not governing for good government. And I think it's going to be a very testing time. And if the new government doesn't do a better job of convincing the Australian people that it's governing in the national interest, that it really is, uh, has got its eye on the ball and is looking to the long-term interests of this country, then I think we're going to see the fracturing of the party system continue. Back to you, Troy. The 47th Parliament has a record crossbench of 16, at least four Greens, 12 independents and other minor party MPs. Is it the end of the road for the two-party duopoly? I think the two-party system is uh, is in its uh, death throes. Really? Uh, th- this has been a long-term trend of the support uh, weakening for the for the two major parties, and by the two major parties, I say the coalition being the Liberal and National Party together. We've seen an acceleration, I think, of that trend uh, at this election. And you know, the the coalition has lost eighteen seats. So while Labor's only going to have a majority of perhaps two seats after allocating a speaker, um, the coalition are a long way uh, behind from coming back. To to get, to get a majority of seats. Uh, I have never seen, and in fact it's never ever happened before, that the Labor Party can form a majority government with a primary vote of 32.6%. It's, it's unheard of. I remember years ago Paul Keating telling me you can't win without a primary vote of 39. Well, that's right. Well, Halcyon he, he, days. He lost in 1996 with 38%. Uh, and, you know, Bill, Bill Hayden, a friend of both of ours, you know, had a primary vote in 1980 of 45% and he couldn't win. Is that right? 45? Yeah. Heavens above. What do you think, Judith? 
Well, look, I'm, I've got quite a, um, an optimistic view of the new parliament because what I see it at is as a revival of the parliament. I mean, in the past, what you had... I mean, there's a lot of different interests and values in across the Australian community. And the political parties, if you like, acted as umbrella organisations within which th there was a lot of brokering and they would come up with a, a united position and they'd get taken to the Australian electorate and where there was basically a large class divide, you know, labour or we had labour capital and, and land is, is our major... Um, underpinnings of the economy. This sort of worked. Uh, but what I think you've now got is a much more complex society where there's a lot more different um, identities and interests and values that need representing. And so this is going to have to be worked out in public in the parliament rather than within the political parties themselves. So when the Democrats were formed in the 80s, we saw a revival of the Senate as a place where there was much more open debate and where compromise could happen. Um, and I think that that's what I'm hoping Labor will be able to, you know, do that in the parliament, that it will respect the crossbench and the range of differences that are there and it will um, allow work for compromise solutions. And this will be a little bit more out in the public f for us all to see rather than happen happening at party conferences. Fred, I suspect you'd agree with much of that because, uh, well, we've got your niece in the parliament, so it could be a productive era. I agree with Judith's analysis on that, and I'd hark back to 1975, a time of intense political difference, and yet the parliament was able to deal with land rights, was able to deal with racial discrimination, was able to deal with family law reform. And it's a reminder that there are parliamentary mechanisms that enable you to deal with the complex problems that Australia faces, and if the election of a large um, uh, bunch of independence facilitates that, we could be in for a new era of really good government. Troy, let's go back to the big issue, and that is wet or dry, left or right, where should the Liberal Party reposition itself, if indeed it can? I think the Liberal Party has to return to the centre-right of politics. That means moving more towards the centre. It doesn't need to become a left-wing uh, party, but it needs to get back to, I think, the Menzies model. And, you know, the, the fact is, is that the, what Menzies can see for the party has long been contested within the party. For example, you know, Malcolm Fraser said it was a Liberal Party. Uh, Tony Abbott says it's a Conservative Party. John Howard says it's a blend of both. Uh, Malcolm Malcolm Turnbull said it was a centrist party, um, and I think it's hilarious that Scott Morrison was asked this question when he became Prime Minister, didn't know which way to go, and he just said, uh, whatever Robert Menzies believed in then, we believe in now. So <laughs> Menzies continues to loom large, but are they really learning the lessons and understanding the kind of party that he formed? And I think with these teal independents taking the blue ribbon liberal heartland, it's time for the party to recognise what it was established for, what its purpose was, and who it represented. And that means getting back to what Menzies conceived. So the advice of our colleague at the Oz, Peter Cradlin, is uh, ill-advised or bonkers? Well, I, I, I do think it's bonkers to think that the Liberal Party should move further to the right. I mean, there, there is no constituency there. And in fact, um, the minor fringe parties on the right wing of politics, so Pauline Hanson's party, Clive Palmer's party, uh, this party called the Liberal Democrats, they all did very, very poorly um, in, in the election, even though they had some prominent media voices supporting them. So, you know, we have, as Judith, Judith noted, uh, a compulsory voting system, which means that everybody votes and most people see themselves within the centre. So you've got to move to the centre if you want to win government. I'm glad you've mentioned the UAP and dispatches because most of us were gobsmacked when it did so badly. Why? Well, I think most people just recognised it was a joke. It was, it was a joke of a party um, that didn't have a clear sense of um, uh, coherence about, about its beliefs, about its purpose, about its constituency. And it was comical to see day after day uh, uh, Clive, uh, uh, sorry, Craig Kelly, the, the, the party leader, um, uh, in advertising for the party as the next prime minister. I mean, it's just ridiculous. They weren't treating gave, the political system seriously. It gave me seriously. a sleepless night, I'll tell you that. Yeah. I thought I was in a parallel little universe. Fred Cheney, wet or dry, what would you advise? I would suggest that we follow the Nick Greiner formulation, warm and dry. We should be warm on social policy and we should be rational in our economic policy. I don't mean by that neoliberal economic policy. I mean 
sensible uh, acceptance of the fact that if you spend money, you've got to raise money, uh, and that's one of the big challenges for the incoming parliament. How do you how do you bridge that gap between spending and uh, raising money? I understand that Dutton harked back to a speech by uh, by Menzies and paid homage to the forgotten people, Fred. Well, I think. In a way, I, I was sympathetic to Dutton saying we just want to be a Liberal Party. and By that he means going back to the, the broad values of Menzies. That would be a very good thing. But the, the problem is that the Liberal Party's got to throw off the sort of appearance of being the nasty party. It's got to start being concerned about all individuals and not just the individuals from the tribes that it favours. Judith, the party has a lot of work to do to rebuild the trust of women. They played such a a crucial role, not only as candidates, successful candidates, but as voters. Yes, well, I think that, look, there's two things I'd say there. I think it has to do something about its pre-selection. So it stops pre-selecting these very entitled private school boys. Um, You know, look at Tim Smith. I mean, you know, really, I, I just... Uh, so I think that's a thing. But the other thing I think, and it's a bit like um, follows on from what Fred says about the nasty party, it has to not be so um, pig-headedly partisan. I mean, what I was trying to say before about Menzies is that Menzies embraced some of the shifts that, that Labor represented in terms of an expanded welfare state. That is, it has to start looking like it wants to find solutions, not just to score political points. And when I saw Dutton, you know, a week after the new government's elected saying, well, we'll just have to come in and clean up Labor's mess, Labor hadn't even had a chance to do anything. <laughs> I thought it's, it's, it's got to actually start looking like it it wants to find solutions. If I was the leader of the Liberal Party, I'd take Fred's advice that they need a return of morality. As Fred says, the party lost its sense of right and wrong. It's time for me to thank my holy trinity, Troy Bramston, senior writer and columnist at The Australian, Judith Brett, Meritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe, and the best Liberal Prime Minister we never had, Fred Cheney, former Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party and Minister in the Fraser Government. Coming up, beloved listeners, the plight of the once majestic Tonley Sap. Lake. With the help of uh, Milton Osborne, we've done a number of programs in the past on the mighty Mekong and the plethora of problems that it's facing. But I don't think we've ever taken a look at Tonley Sap the largest freshwater lake in Southeast Asia, located in the lower Mekong Basin and the northwest of Cambodia. And while the program has spent some time in Cambodia, we never got to see it. It's unlike any other lake in the world. Its very existence, both miraculous and incredibly fragile. But between illegal fishing deforestation, dams and climate change, it's in uh, real trouble, as is the ancient way of life that's tied to it. Abby Seif is a journalist who spent nearly a decade based in Southeast Asia, working as a freelancer and an editor at the Cambodia Daily and the Phnom Penh Post. During that time, she took a number of reporting trips to the lake documenting the lives of those most affected by the changes. Now, she's collated her reporting in a new book titled Troubling the Water, A Dying Lake and a Vanishing World in Cambodia. Abby, congratulations on the book and welcome to the Little Wireless program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Philip. You first arrived in Cambodia in 2009 and uh, despite attempting to move away several times over the next decade, you kept coming back. What is it that draws you to Cambodia? Why have you fallen in love with it? I did, I did. I I went there as a very young journalist uh, thinking I would stay a year or two tops. But it turns out it's a fascinating country. It's an incredible place to report. I made some very dear friends. 
And it was also, you know, it was a very hopeful moment um, in the country, sort of politically and economically. And it felt like there was a lot of change happening. And that was just exciting to be a witness to. And every time I left, I, I found myself drawn back again. Now, there, of course, were earlier witnesses. Your book gives descriptions of the lake penned by centuries of awestruck travellers. What is it about the Great Lake that makes it so, well, so marvellous? Yeah, I mean, it's a pity you weren't able to visit it on your trips because it is an extraordinary site. I mean, many of these explorers refer to it as, as a inland sea or a freshwater sea, a great ocean. And that's precisely what it's like. Um, you know, at, at its height, it's about 6,000 square miles. It swallows up the country, whether you're boating or whether you're flying or whether you're driving on a, a motorcycle there, when it kind of enfolds, unfolds in front of you, it's, it's really an extraordinary sight. Um, of course, what makes it really incredible is the fish. We're talking about billions of fish, just hundreds of varieties of fish. You know, some of these fish can get up to 500, 600 pounds. And so these, these that, travelers... That's a hell of a outside. fish. <laughs> well, no wonder the Chinese, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the French all found it fascinating. Yeah, no wonder. I mean, it was really... You can just imagine what it was like to see this. And not just the huge fish, but just the abundance. You know, they describe fishermen walking to the bank and putting a bowl and scooping it out and it's just writhing with fish. Well, the, the word miraculous is applied to the place and that's because of the movement of the lake, its annual pulsation, which has been vividly described as a giant beating heart. Tell us about that heart. That's right. So what's really unusual about the Tonle Sap is it's fed by a river that connects to the Mekong. And twice a year, this river reverses course. So in the rainy season, what happens is the Mekong becomes full of water, pushes the water up into the lake, and that's when it expands. You know, you can think of a beating heart. In the dry season, the opposite happens. The, the river water flows out. Um, and so it's this really unique hydrological phenomenon. Abby, I've never heard of a river that reverses its course. Are, are there many around? No, no, it's um, it's the only one in the world as far as scientists know. So it covers nearly a tenth of the country in water that comes, what, no higher than the ankles? That's right. So this river reversal, what it does is it brings fish from the upper reaches of the Mekong all the way to the Tonle Sap, and that's what makes it a really extraordinary body of water. You've got these fish migrating really long distances. You've got a ton of nutrients that are being brought in and out. You know, there's an ability for fish to spawn in a way that they just couldn't in a in kind of our, the way we think of a lake or a pond as a as sort of solid, um, well, stagnant well, being. Well, as well as the fish, of course, that's also the the possibility of rice growing. So, how long have Cambodians relied on the lake? That's right. Um, you know, as as far as there have been humans before they were Cambodians, they have relied on this lake. So there's archaeologists who have dug up these, you know, 4,000-year-old burial sites, and we can see that there's fish. You know, they were fishing these fish, and some of them were huge fish. We don't even have that type of fishing equipment anymore. If you go more recently and you look at Angkor Wat, I'm sure some of your um, listeners have been there, there's bas-relief, and they're covered with fish, like specific type of fish species and vendors selling fish. So, you know, from time immemorial, the lake has provided fish and nutrients, like you mentioned, rice crops for, um, for those living around it. And, of course, it features in the art of Cambodia. It does. So I, I mentioned the bas-relief on, on Angkor, but it's more than that. You know, the river reversal, that's in November. There's Water Festival, which is one of the biggest holidays of the Cambodian calendar, and that celebrates this reversal of the river. Um, the creation mythology of Cambodia involves something very similar to the Tonlis floodplain of the water swallowing up the land. So it's... You know, it's a very crucial lake, um, not just from practical terms, but in cultural terms. So for 800 years, the water festival, and of course the lake was essential to both the rise and fall of the Angkor Empire. That's right. So um, 
you know, Angkor, we think of Angkor Wat, but it was a whole kingdom. It had about a million people living there at its height in the 1200s. And the reason it was such a successful kingdom was because they tamed the water. You know, they used that double movement of the lake and some nearby rivers, and they turned them into reservoirs and irrigation, and all of that allowed it to feed a million people. Well, it's it's one of the, the great wonders of the ancient world. This is one of the biggest cities ever. It was, it was. At that time, I think London had about 45,000 population. So this was just unparalleled. And, you know, what one gazes on the way water was used, the water system is epic. And there's growing evidence, is there not, that the empire collapsed due to drought? Yeah, so this is kind of the prevailing theory at the moment is that there was just a series of very, very bad droughts. Uh, scientists can tell this from looking at tree trunks. And those droughts led to all sorts of, you know, collapsing canals. The reservoirs were drying up. And we can just imagine what would have happened to such a large city if that was the case. You know, it had to empty out. People couldn't really rely on those systems anymore. And we're sadly seeing something kind of similar today. I'm talking to Abby Seif. And uh, Abby, tell me more about what life looks like for Cambodians who uh, live on or near the lake. You talk about the floating villages and how life changes as the lake, well, as the lake's heart beats. Yeah, well, these villages are extraordinary, you know smallest ones, we're talking about a few dozen boats um, that kind of move with the water. Bigger ones, they might have schools and pagodas and mechanics, health centers. Um, But then we also have what I would call a stilt village. So we have these homes that are 12 meters in the sky in the dry season and, you know, totally ordinary roads, motorbikes drive down them, cars, chickens running around the street. And then the reason they're so high in the rainy season, the water moves up and up and up until it's, you know, licking the entryway of the homes and suddenly boats are replacing the cars to get around those roadways. But this constant state of flux is becoming more unpredictable, principally, I guess, because of climate change. That's right. Well, it's climate change coupled with hydropower dams. Um, so we've got a whole string of hydropower dams on the main stem of the Mekong, particularly in China. We've got a bunch on the lower tributaries, um, as many as 100. And these are all changing the downstream hydrology. It's changing how the water is moving in and out of the lake. And the yields for both fish and rice are dropping. That's right. Well, you know... It's a little complicated, but what we're seeing is that individual fishers are really struggling. So maybe 10, 15 years ago, they could go out and they would get 20 kilograms in a day. Now they're lucky if they're getting one or two kilos. Um, Often they're not catching enough to feed themselves, let alone to sell. And as a result, this is really impacting, you know, their way of life on the lake. Abby Seif is my guest on LNL and we're talking about her very important new book, Troubling the Water, A Dying Lake and a Vanishing World in Cambodia. So the lake is facing a perfect storm of problems. The flood pulse is dying because, as you say, climate change and hydropower and the reversal of the... uh, of the tone totally sap gets later every year. Mm-hmm. That's right. So because of climate change, you know, we've had four years of drought back to back. This is the first year without drought. Water levels in the Mekong are really low, and that's being exacerbated by these massive hydropower dams, which are holding back water. And what that means is that there's less water to go into the Tonle Sap River. You know, this this heartbeat is is dying. Um, so when the water goes in, the lake is only filling up, you know, a quarter or a portion of what it used to. The lake is shrinking in size. Um, it's, it's completely changing in a very short amount of time. Now, you also talk about illegal fishing. Who are the illegal fisher persons? Illegal fishing, everyone's illegal fishing. Um, If you're a small, small, poor, poor fisherman, you have to illegally fish because there's really, there's so few fish at the moment, it's very hard to catch them otherwise. Um, But 
it seems that the bigger problem is large-scale illegal fishing within conservation zones, you know, the type of thing that's being done for commercial use against the law, presumably with the collusion of authorities and officials who are being bribed to look the other way. Abby, how bad is deforestation as an issue? It's been a huge issue. Um, this is an issue nationwide, but on the lake, we've what we've seen is you have these protected, flooded forests, these wetlands, which are critical spawning grounds for the fish. You know, they don't just migrate into the Mekong; they migrate into these flooded forests, and thousands and thousands of hectares of them have been cut down to make way for farmland in recent years. So this is this is you know just yet another nail in the coffin. You talk about flooded forests, but you uh, visited the lake after wildfires had torn through them. That's right. So these wildfires were sort of the first, I, I know in Australia, they're very common. In Cambodia, they're really, really uncommon because of the climate. So they had never seen these wildfires. But when I visited, there had just been a series of wildfires that absolutely devastated a huge portion of the forest. And that's actually what started the illegal encroachment, because it was easier to clear that. You talk about the incredible generosity of the people you met in sharing their stories with you. Did you detect any optimism? Gosh, I wish I could say I did, but I really didn't. Um, you know, these people are, are seeing it firsthand in a way that none of us are. And, and so even very young people in their 30s, say, could remember that when they were kids, the, the situation was completely different. There were abundant fish. So in their own lifetime, you know, they've seen the fish drop dramatically. I think their optimism is if there were enforcement, if illegal fishing stopped, if, you know, China opened the floodgates, maybe we could do okay. But generally what people want is a lot more support to move to land or to get another type of job. Um, there's a feeling among many that this is sort of the last generation that will be fishers on the lake. What is uh, Hun Sen doing about this as Prime Minister? You know, it's interesting. In the In the last six months, there's been this big push to have, you know, a crackdown on illegal fishing, a crackdown on this deforestation. It's a very publicized push led by Prime Minister Hun Sen. Um, I think it's good. It's a good sign. It shows it's a key issue. The more cynical part of me thinks, well, you know, this has been going on for years. Why now? We've seen these crackdowns before and nothing changes in the run. But Really well, we're well, we're talking about a country with also a lot of corruption. That's correct. I mean, to me, this is ultimately a corruption issue more than anything else. It's a governance issue. It's a corruption issue. You do say that one thing that gives you optimism are the young activists you meet. It's true. You know, it's easy to be cynical about this, but there are young Cambodian activists who are putting their lives on the line, who are risking arrest, working on behalf of environmental causes in Cambodia in a very risky political atmosphere. Environmental activists in particular have really been targeted during this latest round of political repression in the last five years. You know, these people, these young kids, they're just making videos sort of drawing attention to issues and getting in prison for years. Um, and yet, they're still doing it. So it's incredibly commendable. So are you, Abby. Abby Seif, journalist and author of uh, Troubling the Water, A Dying Lake and a Vanishing World in Cambodia. And being a small world, it's published by the University of Nebraska Press. Thank you, Abby. Thank you so much, Philip. This has been a real pleasure. And that's your Bloomin' Lot, beloved listeners, on our next A Shapirouette. Is trade a better way to improve our relationship with the Pacific than aid? And the story of the many soldiers who served in World War II but were still considered aliens. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.